Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, good morning, all of you. Last time I was with you, we looked at Jeremiah 13, uh, but I already preached the next few chapters, so you get to jump straight to chapter 16, verse 19. Um, just listening to that, beautifully read by Lisa, there's so much in there. I reckon there are four sermons in this passage, uh, but I'm going to do the lot, so I might like to keep your Bibles open, uh, just giving the surface. There's a lot to cover. Uh, but this is where Jeremiah gives us his doctrine of humanity, or one of the main places anyway. So uh, you even get an outline today. Uh, there's the sermon title, and uh, the question is, why do we spend time thinking about ourselves uh, in a sermon? Uh, the answer, I think, is because understanding who we are uh, is not only something that drives and shapes our mission, it's one of the things that reveals God's character most clearly and fills us with joy in him. So let's pray as we turn to this section of God's word. Father, open our hearts to hear your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Context. Jeremiah has just preached a dark sermon against his own people, a sermon of death for a people so hard and so cynical in their rebellion that they were beyond all hope of cure. The sermon leaves Jeremiah terribly shaken. And in the reading that Lisa brought us, we hear a series of five poems in which both Jeremiah and the Lord reflect on this terrible thing, on Judah's rejection of their God on what this rejection tells us about human nature and about God's character. So in the opening poem, uh, Jeremiah turns to God for strength and remembers who God is. Point one. There it is. Thank you. God's kingship is so glorious that in the end, no nation is going to be able to resist it. And in verse 21, God replies, yes, I do indeed have a good purpose, a wonderful plan to bring the nations to bow the knee before me. It's an amazing vision. But of course, there's a problem. There is something obstructing those good purposes of God, and that something is the human heart. To explain why a people who received all the benefits of God's love and loyalty would despise him until it killed them. To explain that, God performs a series of autopsies and he shows Jeremiah what the human heart looks like. Now, before we open up the patient, uh, we need to understand what aspect of ourselves the heart represents in the Old Testament. Jeremiah mentions the heart almost 60 times, so we can put a fairly clear picture together, I think. So your heart is not your feelings. Good thing to get clear. It's more like this little person inside of you with a mind of its own. Your heart reasons and decides, although sure, the, the thought processes of your heart can be affected by a range of feelings like desire and stubbornness and greed and pride. Basically, your heart is this little version of the you that thinks and decides. Good? All good? 
So, let's look at patient number one, the one with a stone heart. The hardness of the human heart is vividly represented by this stone tablet that requires the hardest of pens to engrave words into its surface. And the stone tablets, I think, are supposed to remind us of Moses on the mountain of God. But these tablets have an anti-covenant carved into them. Now, what chance does God's law have with hearts like that? Well, none, basically. The horns of the altars, to go to Jeremiah's next image, were smeared with blood to purify them with sin, but no sacrificial blood is going to be able to purify people whose hearts are permanently inscribed with sin. And what's even more tragic is that this heart condition is actually inheritable. And if God's people are to survive in the next generation, their children need to cherish memories of what God did to save them. But these children only have memories of their parents' idolatry. Their receptive little hearts are going to have nothing good written on them at all. So the consequences for God's people in this first autopsy are going to be irreversible. As verse 4 ends up, my anger will burn forever. Now, the New Testament rightly warns Christ's people against allowing sin to harden their hearts so they turn away from God in unbelief. But need to be careful here because sin didn't harden the hearts in this poem. They were stone hard already. They were already the perfect surface for sin to engrave. Now, the trouble with these hearts is not that they've somehow become abnormally diseased, the trouble is, this is their natural state. And neither God, nor law, nor priestly sacrifice makes any difference. Now, for those of you who are not cardiologists, uh, you could say that sin wasn't programmed into Judah. It was their hardware. Now, when we reach this point in our rejection of God, the little person inside us doesn't even really think anymore. And we just stand intellectually and morally against him. Our fixed beliefs and decisions are no longer amenable to reason. No appeal can move us. No principle can sway us from our unshakable, self-evident truth that my life is mine to spend and God is a tyrant for trying to stop me. Paul called us dead in our transgressions and sins, and this is what he meant. Patient number one. Well, patient number two is a little bit livelier. It's the human with a turning away heart. Now, this second poem has strong links to Psalm 1, as I'm sure you'll have noticed as Lisa read it. It steps back from the terminal case of the stony-hearted human to examine the human condition more generally. And the owner of this type of heart is what you might call the self-reliant human. Let me read verse 5. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now the word mere is important. We're not cursed just for drawing strength from flesh, from the material world. That's not the cursed thing. It's for making flesh our strength. 
Right, for believing that I am the author of my own accomplishments, that the key to success lies in my resilience, my resourcefulness. And the punchline of verse 5 reveals that this heart is alive, it can move, but only in one direction. You will always find a heart that turns away from God in a human who relies on themselves. They are the two sides of the one turning away motion. And so what we get in the two descriptions of verses 6 to 8 are two pictures that illuminate one another. Right? The person turns away from God, they miss out on blessing because they find themselves in this rainless waste where no blessing falls. The parched places, the salt soil, those are images of self-reliance which I'm actually betting would surprise a self-reliant person, right? To a person whose rugged independence may have earned them a bit of fame, fortune, and friends, this doesn't sound right. And that's why we need the other picture, to understand the aridity of their life. We need a picture of the flip side, which comes in verse 7. So the heart that turns towards God... It doesn't just drink in the rain when it happens to come. It is constantly nourished by life-giving waters. And this is, if you think about it, so much more than a simple opposite of the turning away heart. Now, the difference uh, between these two hearts is pinpointed by a wordplay on two words which uh, Hebrew 1 students notoriously get confused. Fear and see. Right? Yara and ra'ah. Now, uh, in verse 6, the turning away heart will not see prosperity when it comes. In verse 8, the turning towards heart will not fear when heat comes. Now, just think about it. You see what he's driving at? The poverty of the self-reliant heart? That's got nothing to do with money and friends. What the self-reliant person fatally lacks are the riches that sustain the turning towards heart even when times are terrible. What's more, those riches that strengthen the heart strengthen it to be fruitful, to nourish others by the life with which God nourished it. And you know, it wasn't until I reached the end of this poem that I looked back and I suddenly realized the turning away heart, the self-reliant heart, is absolutely fruitless in that poem. Now that verdict on the human condition is not easy to swallow. To say that a human whose thoughts and desires turn away from God and towards self, uh, to say that a human like that lives a cursed life, I reckon has zero face validity out there in the world. But this is the Bible's verdict on every human who does not choose to live for God's glory and honour. It's like Moses said, listen to the Lord's voice because the Lord is your life. To live from God and to live for God is actually to drink life unending. But if you give any human being the chance, they're always going to choose to turn away. Their lives are going to be shallow and fruitless, and before long they'll end up like patient number one, stony-hearted and beyond fixing. Well, our third and final patient has a heart that's not just alive, it's positively cunning. 
Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that just because the little person inside a human is unable to turn to God and permanently fixed in their thinking that they're not clever. Right? They're probably cleverer than both of us. But there's a catch. Verse 9 is a very famous verse. But who do you think the heart deceives? The word for deceit here is the one that describes Jacob, the deceiver Esau, the betrayer, the heel grasper. And yet, of course, if you think about the Jacob story, Jacob became the victim of his own cunning, didn't he? And the illustration of verse 11 of the partridge points to people who cunningly exploit others to enrich themselves, but then fail to hang on to their wealth because their cunning backfires. After all, if you make enough enemies, sooner or later, one of them's going to bring you down. So, that illustration's helpful, and if we go back to verse 9, where the final victim of the deceitful heart is actually that heart's owner. There are two tragic facts about the deceitful heart that we need to note. First of all, every human owns one. And second of all, not even the cleverest human has enough insight into their own heart to avoid ruining their lives with self-destructive behavior. Jeremiah's proverb may well have inspired Jesus' parable of the rich fool, you know, the one who built bigger barns and whose life God took away because he stored up things for himself and wasn't rich toward God. One of the reasons why I think understanding our own hearts is so difficult is that you can't take it out to have a look at it. And the same applies to the little human that your heart represents. You can't extract yourself and somehow stand outside of yourself to examine yourself objectively. If only we could know ourselves truly, then perhaps we could take the right measures to avoid self-deception and direct our hearts towards a successful life. But how can fallen reason reason with itself? Now, one of the great things about community is that sometimes others can show us things we can't see in ourselves. But Jeremiah was dealing with an entire society that had embraced and rationalized a set of delusions about themselves and God. Because the heart is corporate as well as individual. In the end, only one person can show us what we are. And that is God, precisely because he is not human. And his verdict, delivered in verse 10, is pretty devastating. The two organs that God examines in Hebrew are actually the heart and the kidneys. Uh, but in Hebrew, those symbolize, when they come together, reason and emotion, right? intellect and desire. And the way in which our attributes join up is as follows. Put them up, Kevin. Reason plus desire results in conduct. What this means is that our deepest feelings, our appetites, our prejudices, our passions, those feelings shape our intellect so that we end up producing perfectly argued and logical reasons for doing what we desire, whether consciously or unconsciously. Try as we might, we cannot free our reason from our desires, 
And what are our desires? They are turned away desires. They're desires that are hardwired into us by sin so that we are unwilling and unable to change them. So as we think about the task of mission, this is where we have to start, isn't it? These are the hearts that we long to see changed. And by the way, they include our own hearts, don't they? How's that going to happen? It is certainly beyond the power of any of us to change them. And yet, remember Jeremiah's first poem, God's good purposes will see the nations come to him. That's why we get this paradoxical verse 13, which tells us that the judge who's going to destroy stony-hearted Israel is also the hope of Israel. How does that even work? I mean, turning away from God, is, which verse 13 mentions, is exactly what Israel has done. And yet at the same time, God is the spring of living water. You know, if only they would turn towards him, their incurable hearts might actually be cured. And at precisely this point of impasse, of contradiction, we hear the voice of Jeremiah one last time, God's good human, speaking impossible, miraculous words. I'm going to read verse 14. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved, for you are the one I praise. Somehow, here is one person whose heart turns towards God, who trusts in him in the midst of hardship and persecution. How do we explain that freak of nature? Well, Jeremiah's words are actually, in this little poem, an echo of chapter 1, and they remind us that Jeremiah was not a normal human being. As God said to him back at the beginning of the book, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so as a human being, Jeremiah represents something new. A soft heart, a turn towards heart. The heart of a person who knows himself because he listens to God, the God who knows him. That's Jeremiah as a human. Jeremiah as a prophet, his task is to bring God's words of terror against a stony-hearted nation until they're destroyed. And here's the thing about Jeremiah. His new heart did not exempt him from sharing in Israel's judgment. The difference is that Jeremiah's heart entrusts itself to God and is kept safe through terror to stand as a foretaste of what God's people might look like once they too have passed through death and been miraculously restored to life. Now it's not hard to see the humanity of Jesus foreshadowed here. Jesus' heart was fully human. Why? because it was animated by the life of God, the spring of living water, because it placed complete trust in the source of its life, because Jesus listened wholeheartedly to the Father, he knew himself fully as a man. He didn't fear when heat came. His obedient death as our representative bore the fruits of resurrection life. 
Now, brothers and sisters, your hearts are not designed to function on an internal power source. They are fueled by the life that comes from God. And Jesus comes to us as the human that we could never be. He comes to us as somebody who's been authorized by his obedience to offer us God's own life. And that is a life that turns dead stone to living flesh, that makes that flesh turn in longing towards its maker, that prompts us to ask God to tell us who we are. And in the end, it is God's address to us that makes us human. There's only one word with the power to get into stony hearts and revive them, and that is the word of the God who said, let there be light. And in Christ Jesus, God's good human, that word has come to us. Praise the Lord. Human hearts think that that is a weak and foolish word because they're deceived. But in the end, the hardest of hearts cannot resist the power of that word to judge and the power of that word to save. So if you would renew your humanity, if you would see the nations come to know their king, remember the words of God when he said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him.